Heavenly Father, we thank you for words that already come to us this morning with the power to comfort, to heal, to lift us up. We pray now for the ears to hear, for the heart to embrace, trust, and be blessed by your word. Father, we walk by faith, not by sight. Unspoken thing, uh, unseen things, realities that in our hearts steady us and ground us from all the sorrow and sadness that we see around us in this world so broken by sin. And we are men and women of unclean lips, and we live among a people of unclean lips. And you come in the Word made flesh, Jesus, and you say, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Lord, give us faith to trust in your love and grace so that we are set free enough to recognize and acknowledge our own poverty. And then rejoice that he who was rich for our sakes became poor so that in him we might become rich. Lord, acquaint us with the wealth that is ours in your kingdom. Feed us from that bread that we can't bake here on earth, but comes down from heaven and meets us where our real deepest hunger is. Give us presence of mind. Set us free from all that distracts us. Strengthen us and equip us. Jesus, do that work that you spoke of and promised in the words that we've already read. Give us the rest that we need that includes the yoke of service that is easy and light, lighter than the burden of sin, because you yoke us to yourself, and every work that we do is done in you, and there is rest for the weary. So we ask for that refreshment, for that nourishment. Meet us just exactly where we are, Lord, and you know where each one of us is. And we thank you for that knowledge. Because, O oh God of grace, you do not use that knowledge against us. But you use it for us in compassion and mercy. All at the cost of your Son dying on our behalf. We give you praise. We open your word now with expectation. And pray in Jesus' name. How are you? 
you're good, Sharon. Sharon's good. How about the rest of you? <coughs> I see smiles. I see confusion. I see scowls. I see all kinds of things. That's all right. The Lord knows where you are. And my face sometimes does stuff that I don't think lines up with how I feel in my heart. Well, may the Lord bring us out of the place <clears throat> where maybe we find ourselves and uh, just put us back on that solid foundation, the rock of Jesus Christ this morning by His Word, and He can do that. And as I read, His invisible hand reaches down into our hearts. We are studying... Philippians, and I, uh, in my own foolishness, read a big chunk last week, an entire chapter, thinking i got to keep this united chapter all together, and I want to do that, um, and I can cover everything that it says in it, and that was my folly. So we're going to revisit it and just uh, finish the job touch on maybe what wasn't given enough attention, but is definitely there for our attention in Philippians chapter 3. So again, Paul uh, writes this letter to this church that has shown him love and support from the time that he founded the church ten years earlier, and now he finds himself awaiting trial, possibly death. He finds himself confined now to a, a room in Rome, chained to uh, a soldier, a praetorian guard of Caesar's. And they've expressed their love in giving money for his support and in giving Paul Epaphroditus, one of their own, to help him in his time of need. So he writes them a letter. He sends Epaphroditus home with this letter thanking them and encouraging them. And as, uh, as we saw last week, he comes really here to the end of a, a section that begins uh, the, the heart of the letter, an exhortation that extends from chapter 1, verse 27, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ or live that citizenship of heaven, as the word uh, is nuanced, um, in a way that fits good news. That's what this is all about. This imprisoned man facing the possibility of death, and yet considering it gain because of Jesus and the resurrection, encourages the Philippians, knowing they're going through similar stuff. And God's Word comes to us, knowing that we are, in, in different ways, going through similar stuff. And it's just imbued with joy because of the resurrection. So that call of what to do now is not freighted with guilt, is not freighted with finger-wagging, but is infused with joy. Gives us the example of Jesus who did it all for us in the first place 
and now calls us to be available for him to do it in us. Gives us the example of Timothy. Gives us the example of Epaphroditus. Good models to follow. And finally gives him gives us his own example. So let's reread this chapter and then we'll just finish what was left unfinished last time. Uh, Philippians 3, verse 1, Pew Bible, page 1176. And so, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the mutilators. For we are the circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God, and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Now that little pair there, you know, I've already preached this, so I'm going to maybe sprinkle some commentary in as we go along, okay? That little pair there, glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh, is what is, it's a literary device called antithesis. So it's put positively, then it's put negatively, right? The opposite of glorying or having confidence in the flesh is glorying in Christ Jesus. Verse 4, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Now let's pause there. And those of you who have been following all along, that word gain, did it show up earlier on in the letter? Early, early, early? To live is Christ, to die is gain. Paul's writing the same letter on the same theme. And that what in the, in the world seems the height of irony, to die is gain? Verse 7, Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them dung, so that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, or through the faithfulness of Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it. Here's where we're going to go. Right here. Verse 12. Not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, But I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. 
Brothers, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect or mature, have this attitude, and if anyone... If in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Brothers, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even weeping, enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their stomach, whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, or for whom I long, my joy and crown. In this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Very personal words. Little insight into what he's doing while they're being written probably by someone who's writing for him as he dictates. He's weeping. As he thinks of people within the church who are enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, they'd never call themselves enemies of Christ. But it's the enemy of the cross This is the offense of the gospel. We need a dead Savior. We need someone who endured horrors of hell. It's that bad. Not a superficial problem, right? The news is always the same. Titus chapter 3, hating, being hated. It's a mess. And it needs to start all over again, and that's what we need. And the opposition that Paul is talking about here, the threat from within the church... is that which, while claiming to support Christ, opposes the very core of what Jesus came to do, to die on our behalf, by telling us that we can take pride in something that we have quite apart from Christ, that that's reliable, that it's still okay. It's never worked in the past, but we're going to keep trying. Well, let, let's step back and, uh, and make sure that um, 
we've entered into this passage again. Paul is, again, as I said before we read, giving us his own example, finally, after a, a list of examples that, belongs, that, that begins with the perfect example of Jesus in chapter 2, that very centerpiece of the entire letter. Chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, uh, sometimes called the Christ hymn because Paul rises to the level of poetry, uh, whether he's quoting someone else's work or uh, his own. Certainly, it, it uh, has the truth of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here as we find it in Scripture. That uh, testimony to the work of Christ, his equality with God, the compassion uh, by which he left those privileges and humbled himself, emptied himself, took the form of a slave, though from eternity existing in God, did not cling to that, but died the death of a slave, obedience to death, even death on the cross, and then the exaltation of Christ. That permanent glory, uh, when all the glory that's so important to us is long gone, it's faded, it's rusted, it's been chipped away, it's eroded, it's washed away. The glory of Christ that comes, ironically, through death and suffering remains and is universal. Every knee bowed, every tongue confessing, Jesus is Lord of the glory of God the Father. That's the glory that God wants. He wants to be glorified as the Father the Father of Jesus, who through Jesus becomes our Father. The Father who exalts the Son who so loved the world that He obeyed the Father's will and died in our place. That brings glory to God. So that's the sort of fountain from which everything else flows Paul says, you see this in Timothy. You see the same Spirit of Jesus living in Timothy. He says there aren't many people like him around who put the interests of others ahead of himself. Everyone's preoccupied with their own stuff. Or Epaphroditus, risking death for the Gospel. And then when he gives us his example, he uses as a master of classic rhetorical, um, of classic rhetoric, Paul uh, uses the device what's called synchrisis. I, I mentioned this last week. Chrysis or critique. Syn, S-Y-N, the prefix that means together. In other words, two examples a bad example and a good example set side by side so that you will understand the good example as it's set in contrast with the bad example. So Paul here presents himself as an example in the context of this threat, this presence in the church that really is an enemy of the cross of Christ and what's commonly called the Judaizers a pervasive threat that he's dealt with in other churches, and we find it showing up in other letters. A, something very personal to Paul. Uh, those who tell you to put confidence in the flesh, that antithesis I mentioned, versus glorying in Christ. Those who say, no, you're not acceptable 
even though you believe in Jesus, you Gentile converts, you must be circumcised. You need something tangible to sort of hang on to for your security, this badge of membership in the flesh. And Paul says, no, we're the true circumcision. What makes us that? We worship in the Spirit of God. It's not outward conformity. It is inner transformation through God's grace, cleansing us of our sin and giving us new life. We glory in Christ Jesus. So beware, beware, beware. The dogs, you know, that uh, in the mind of the Jew, not that fluffy, devoted friend that you uh, pet on your lap, but that unclean animal who goes around eating filthy things and, and uh, you know, roadkill and that kind of stuff. Beware of evil workers. Beware of false circumcision. The word circumcision is it, the end. The, the word cutting, yes, but the word circumcision in Greek is... Um, Peritome, to cut around. And here he uses the same root word for cutting, but doesn't use the prefix around, but the, the prefix kata, which means to, to mutilate, to disfigure. So he's intentionally playing on words here to say that's, it's not circumcision. It might be, you know, outwardly, medically, the very same thing. But if its purpose is to suggest that Jesus Christ is not enough and faith in Him is not enough, even though this was absolutely required of Israel in the Old Testament. You had to do this, or you would be, if you don't cut, you'll be cut off from your people. Abraham and his descendants were told. But why? Not because you, so you can take pride in, well, we are Abraham's sons. You know, Jesus faced that sort of attitude. He himself was a son of Abraham. He said, you, you know, God can make children of Abraham from anything. Give me a rock. God will make it a child of Abraham. The whole point of circumcision on the eighth day is basically saying, not here's something that you can look at and think how good you are, but look, here's, here's something that speaks of how bad you are. You were born in sin. You're, you're, as, as you come into this world, there is this flaw, and it needs to be cut away in this bloody experience of this precious child and there needs to be the shedding of blood to rescue him or, well, yeah, not her in the Old Testament um, to rescue him from that spiritual state of, of, of sinfulness and, and misery into which we are born the removal of sin. So it doesn't speak of anything we can take pride in. It speaks precisely of what's wrong with us. And in the Old Testament even, there is, it's as an outward symbol of the circumcision of the heart, which is obviously something that, uh, you know, uh, Amohel can, can do, right? It's something that God has to do to remove our sin, to cleanse us, to forgive us. And that's, that's the point of, of circumcision. But once we turn it into something that's not, okay, you know, Paul says elsewhere, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. So, I mean, you know, circumcision's fine if medical reasons, cultural reasons, whatever. 
But once it becomes that sort of requirement that you impose on others, what we're talking about here is what we, talk, we call you know, legalism, perhaps, that sense that uh, our acceptance before God is based on our own ability to conform to some rules and regulations, the law of God, and uh, we judge ourselves and we judge others based on that conformity because bottom root, we don't have any confidence that God treats us in any way apart from judging us on those standards. And so it's a religion of despair. It's a religion of, of useless effort because we never get there. And it's a religion of judgment. And it's a religion of fear. And so it becomes a religion of complete artifice because the church becomes a place where you pretend that you've got it all together because if you don't, you know, people will know that you're not worthy, you haven't arrived there yet and you're judging yourself that way and there's no joy in your heart whatsoever because you don't know that God judged you in Jesus Christ on the cross and loves you. So Paul says, I've, you know, all those outward ducks, I've got them all in a row. In that system of bean-counting religion, I'm way ahead of the game for everyone else. But I gave it all up. Why? Because I found something better, infinitely better. So these things aren't bad in themselves, being a Jew, being a, you know, a Hebrew-speaking Jew, you know, those are fine. But when that zeal, he inserts in that list of his credentials, when that zeal leads you to opposing the very agenda of God, persecuting the church. Very similar to what he says about the Judaizers, the legalists, em enemies of the cross of Christ. Well, they would never say that of themselves, but that's what, that's what they're doing. When you add to Jesus, you are taking away from Jesus. When you say you need more, you're saying He's not enough. And the only freedom we have, the only freedom we have, from despair. The only security and confidence we can ever have in the gospel is, is being sure that not even 1% depends on us. He's everything. Then when, that when He died on the cross, on our behalf, He did not do it even 1% for Himself because He had a sin on His own part to pay for. He was the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. He did it 100% for us, and when He did it, He did it completely. So there's no other lamb or pigeon that has to die. There's no other little boy that needs to be, for any religious purposes, be circumcised because it was pointing to Jesus and the Messiah has come and He's done it all. He's done that blood shedding that for once for all puts away sin completely. It has to be 100%. Because if 1% is left to you, it's all over. Oh, well, let me speak for myself. I can't even be trusted with 1%. You know, you know, people can say a thousand nice things about you and then one person criticizes you and what do you think about? Oh, those thousand nice... No, you obsess about the one... Criticism. Now, let's put that in, in the framework of, of God, okay? So, He can nail you and He'll be right on. And so, you can have done a, a bazillion things right. You know, when you're pulled over by the traffic cop, you can say, 
well, I didn't speed for like months and months and months. And the first time I speed, I go over the speed limit. And here you're stopping me. And he says, I don't care about all the good things you've done. I'm nailing you for speeding. And so you come before God and you've got a thousand good things that you did. If 1% is left to me, you know, it's all over. Despair. But Jesus is enough. That's why everything else is rubbish by comparison. So the one thing I want to touch on is uh, when we get to verse 11, verse 12, verse 13, Paul says stuff that might sort of undermine that full confidence that we, we got earlier by, okay, we don't have to try to pretend that we've got a righteous covering that we manufacture and we've got all of our credentials and we've got the right background and we, we can let all of that go because we have Jesus. And so in verse... Right there... Let's go back to... Uh, he counts it all rubbish, verse 8, so that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death in order that... Now, this translation doesn't fully bring out the sort of nuances of what Paul is saying. Um, you know, that somehow... This is the language that somehow I might be able to obtain, attain to the resurrection from the dead. And that's where maybe we get a little thrown off because now all the certainty seems to melt away and Paul isn't quite certain, it seems perhaps, that he's going to actually attain to the resurrection. What? Verse 12. Not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also Christ Jesus laid hold of me. Brothers, verse 13 again, I don't regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. So Paul is saying, I'm not there yet, but I press on. Verse 12, here's the program. Here's what's make, what makes us perhaps nervous. Not that I already have obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on. And we read that word perfect and suddenly... We've shaken our boots because we're part of a culture and a church culture that is reacting to a legalism in the past, an outward conformism, a perfectionism that has now freighted that word perfection with very negative things. And when we embrace salvation by grace, and then someone says, well, the Bible says, be perfect. No, no, I can't handle that pressure. I'm good enough, right? So, we need to deal with this. And we're, what we're talking about here is a word. Perfection. Perfect. Uh, it's just a word. So it accumulates, you know, over time for various reasons. Uh, baggage, perhaps. So we can, we can redefine the word and recover its biblical meaning instead of the accretions that have come culturally from it in our own experience. Or we can use, um, uh, we can use synonyms. 
But biblically, the word perfect just means complete, entire, nothing missing, nothing lacking. And I want to say at the outset that this is God's plan for us. Okay? So we might not like the word perfection or perfect because of associations we have with it. But we have to come to terms with what the Bible is calling us to when it, talk, when it talks about perfection. And we have to distinguish perfection from perfectionism as we've come to know it perhaps in our own experience, in our cultural setting. God is, the, the word in the Greek simply means that you are going towards an end. You have a goal. There is a destiny where you haven't arrived yet. You're on a process of arriving there, and God is bringing you there, and His intention is that you arrive at a state of perfection. Well, let's put it in other terms that maybe we would find more acceptable. Romans chapter 8. We know that God works all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. For those He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Do we like that? Do you want to be like Jesus? That's what perfection is. Being like Jesus is being perfect. And in our minds it might be because the contrast here is that Perfection, biblically, is really, in so many ways, the very opposite of perfectionism, as it's represented by the legalists or the Judaizers, who are all in the game of, and this is where you find the pressure, of pretending that we're perfect, or despairing, because we know we're not. And that's not where Paul is. Paul here doesn't talk about anything that he's pretending to be, but when he talks about pressing on to perfection, he's also not talking about any despair that he has in the fact that he's not there yet. So there's something different here going on. This is not the psychological uh, condition that, we, that, that we're just repulsed by, perfectionism, and all the pressure of conforming to the expectations that others have of what we should look like. We're talking about conforming to Jesus Christ. Now, do you like Jesus? You're in a Christian church. I hope you like Jesus. I love Jesus. What do I like about Jesus? Was Jesus a perfectionist? He was perfect. But was he a perfectionist who played this game like others thought, oh, well, you better wash your hands the right way. You better fast on the right days. You know what? The wonderful thing, one of the things that I love about Jesus, I love everything about Jesus, but one of the things that I love about Jesus was he didn't give up. He didn't care at all about the expectations of other people. So he wasn't in some sort of a, a prison cell of perfectionism. Oh, you guys aren't fasting on the right days. And Jesus had this wonderful freedom. He wasn't nervous when he was confronted with his imperfections in the eyes of other people, of that conformism. He wasn't a conformist. So let's shed the baggage of that idea of perfectionism that maybe we got from the piano teacher who had a hickory stick. 
Later on, no. Be perfect. Oh, no. And we go right back to the piano bench where Sister Mary Teresa was hitting my fingers with the... She didn't. She hit my sister's fingers. My sister doesn't play the piano anymore. Yeah, so what do you like about Jesus? What do I like about Jesus? I love Jesus because he first loved me. I love that Jesus looked at me from heaven. I love that Jesus, um, even though he didn't have to, because he had a throne, he had everything that he needed, looked at me and was so concerned about the trouble I was in that he left it all behind and he got down there with me and he helped me. And he didn't stop short of anything in helping me. He, he went all the way to a horrible, horrible death. And I mean, talk about worrying about what people would think. You know, you know who were put on crosses? Oh, murderers and slaves. People of, of, of no earthly value in the eyes of society. So, Jesus, you're thinking of going to the cross, eh? Well, what would that look like? I mean, that's not very respectable. Yeah, so Jesus didn't care at all about that stuff. Why? Because he loved me. I really like that. That's what I admire about Jesus. Uh, admire is such a, 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 a lame word for how I feel about that. I mean, that is the consolation that floods my soul when there is nothing else to console me. Are, is that true of you? This is what Jesus did. So everything here in this book is anchored to that centerpiece of the Christ hymn. Have the same attitude. That's all we're talking about. Just be like Jesus, okay? That's all we're talking about is all his privileges and he weighed those against his love for us and he said, now I'll set those aside and I will humble myself and I will become obedient all the way to the cross. And God said, yes. And gave him a name that's above every name. Now, Jesus says, follow me. Don't cheapen my death by saying, well, I filled out my Gideon Bible that I gave my life to Jesus, and this is the date, and now I'll just go on living because I've got a fire insurance policy somewhere there. So I'm not going to hell because I walked the aisle or whatever it is. You walk the aisle that you keep walking. You know, that's what Paul is saying. I haven't, I haven't reached the end of the aisle yet because I'm following Jesus and until I am physically there in a resurrected body with Him in glory, well then, I'm not there yet. So this is God's agenda for us. I love that Jesus loved me. So do you? And you'll want to be like that, right? Do you admire Jesus? You'll want to be like that. Is he your role model? 
because he was such a free man. He was so free from the expectations of others. He was so free from even all of what he had going for him, his credentials, out of love for you and out of love for me. And that doesn't get better than that. So that's perfection. Now do you want to be perfect? Do you want to be like Jesus? I hope so. Well, a few more things about perfection versus biblical perfection, biblical maturity, completeness, Christ's likeness, versus perfectionism. Perfectionism says, I need to have it all together to be acceptable in the eyes of others, in my own eyes, ultimately in God's eyes. And perfection biblically is based on this, I am accepted in God's eyes. It's His agenda for us, not for something for us to do, but something that He does in us, and He takes the initiative. And He accepts us fully. That's what Paul is talking about. This is one integrated chapter when Paul says... Here's what I want, not a righteousness that I have of my own from the law, what I can piece together, which is never good enough, which is never going to give me any security or comfort, but to be found in Christ. With a righteousness based on His faithfulness, not mine. A righteousness that comes to me by trusting in Him. So, that's what we're talking about here. Not a perfectionism that is trying to be good enough to be acceptable to God, but a perfectionism that comes from being accepted by God and being brought along by a Heavenly Father in that setting of home, in that setting of family. This was so important. It was so personal to Paul because he had played this game. It was so important to a Philippian society which was so status-based, so proud of being uniquely, uh, as opposed to like Thessalonica or Berea, those other Macedonian cities. Well, Philippi was a, a colony of the city of Rome. They enjoyed citizenship. They had military heroes who acquired citizenship, this status where they didn't have to pay taxes anymore, where they had all kinds of rights and legal recourses that other people didn't have. They were the Five percent. They were the elite. So, Paul knows it's important for them too. The way he writes, they've not been overcome by this legalism. Compare this to the way he writes the Galatians. But it's a real threat. It always is. Whether it's called Judaizing or not. That confidence in the flesh... But what we have here is us becoming who we are in Jesus Christ. That's the wonderful thing. So, where he is really introducing the same thing in other words, in, in chapter 1, verse 27, when he begins, he says, you know, live in such a way as the citizens that you are. You are citizens of heaven. He says the same thing again here. Clearly, our citizenship is in heaven. Not will be, if we're good enough, but is. Okay? So, live in a way that suits the good news, chapter 1, verse 27. 
or chapter 2, verse, uh, verse 12, work out your salvation. Not work for your salvation, but you have been saved. Now, work out what it means to live a saved life. And then all of the assurance that God underwrites the entire thing for it is God who works in you both to will and to do in accordance with His good pleasure. So the pressure's off as we are called to strain and strive with all our might to perfection, to being who we are, to shedding the artificial selves that are preoccupied with what other people think, that are preoccupied with, well, crossing our fingers and trying to fake it good enough so that we can fool God through circumcision or through our our church background or whatever into thinking that we're good enough. You know, do you think this will fool Him? No. See, that's why this letter is so full of joy. That's why he begins by saying, Brothers, rejoice in the Lord. That's where it starts. It's where this discussion of the Judaizers, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the mutilators. It starts with, rejoice in the Lord. That's the difference. Perfectionism is worried about honesty or fakes honesty in saying, well, I'm not perfect as an excuse for being a jerk, maybe. Whereas um, Paul here says, I haven't arrived. I'm not perfect. I'm not there. Now, Again, it's not, i got to get there or I will lose salvation. I have this righteousness in Christ by faith. But theologians make an important distinction of two things that can never be separated. Justification. Being accepted despite our sinfulness as innocent, pure, holy because of Jesus. Justification. His righteousness, reckoned to our account. Uh Uh-oh, my balance is negative whatever. And I go and I put my card in there and check balance and, what? I've got a million bucks? This is awesome. Yes. His righteousness to your account. Justification. And then the theologians talk about sanctification as a process. Now, they are inseparable, but they are important to distinguish Because sanctification involves every fiber of our being. Now, as God works in us by that Spirit of Jesus in us to shed whatever is standing in the way of being who He created us to be as His image bearers. That glorious being that Psalm 8 talks about. What is man that you care about him, yet you made him just a little lower than yourself? So we see it in Jesus. That's what God wants you to be. He wants you to be who you are in Jesus. And He's going to do it. So Paul doesn't talk about anything that he's nervous won't happen. He just doesn't want to fool himself into pretending he's there yet. And that's the game, right? If you're worried about your imperfection, so the game is to pretend that you're perfect and you have this 
teaching in the history of the church of, uh, of sinless perfectionism, where you have very sinful people saying, it's, it's okay, I'm perfect. Um, what are you not seeing that I'm seeing so very clearly? So, Paul says, without the anxiety of something that might not happen, I'm striving, pressing on to lay hold of that for which Christ laid hold of me. You see how beautiful that second clause is? Christ has laid hold of you. So you're going to do everything to lay hold of what you have in Christ. And so Paul's very honest. I haven't arrived. You see, perfectionism doesn't trade well in honesty or misuses honesty to excuse. Paul doesn't do that. Notice that Paul says that I haven't arrived. Paul. Paul, for decades now, has been a follower of Jesus. And what has he done? Well, he's endured all kinds of horrible things. He's been imprisoned. He's been beaten. He was, uh, people threw stones at him and left him for dead. And he kept going. And he suffered shipwreck. And this, he planted churches all over the place. He was tireless in everything. And Paul says, I haven't arrived by any means. I'm not perfect. So if, if, if you got pressure thinking, well, you're not perfect. Well, you're in good company. So, how do you strain? How do you press on? Here's his methodology. Verse 10. Knowing, in that biblical sense of experiencing. Experiencing Him. And the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, here's a beautiful literary device called chiasmus or crisscross. So, or you come full circle, whatever you want to say. It starts with uh, the power of His resurrection. We can label that A. And the fellowship of His sufferings, you can label that B. Being conformed to His death, B. In order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead, A. You come full circle, you see. It starts with resurrection, death, death, resurrection. So, we are becoming one with Jesus... In his death and resurrection. And how, what is Paul's methodology then of achieving perfection? Not our idea of perfectionism, but simply letting it happen fully, dying so that you can experience resurrection. And that's the only way, by the way, you can experience resurrection. Something that is absolutely required. If you're going to be resurrected from the dead, you do have to die. And what Paul is experiencing again and again is that same death that we read about in chapter 2. Jesus laying aside his privileges and living for others. That's the freedom of racing toward perfection. Or, if you prefer, of being like Jesus. Getting out of the way, letting go of all of those things that provide you with earthly security, it doesn't mean that you actually let them all go physically, but you don't 
form them as the basis of your security. Listen, Paul had some privileges that he made use of. His Roman citizenship, he could make use of that, or he could not. Whatever served the purpose, he just made sure that that's not his idol, that's not where his security is. Why? Because he's found something better, and this is going to pass, and it's not going to endure, it's going to wear out, and if he clings to it, it's going to distract him and keep him from something that is secure, permanent, and better, and perfect, Jesus. So to be found in him, with a righteousness that comes from his faithfulness. So the process of of working toward perfection is just letting go. The dead are free of so many things, aren't they? All the things that trap you. All the things that we're... What, what, what do we fear the most? Hebrews chapter 2 says, well, we're, we're enslaved by the fear of death. And then Paul comes along and says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Well, he's been set free. And that's the thing when you lose those things that seem so important to you because they impress other people and it's just... Because that's... Well... You've got to make sure that they think... Well, what is it? What's holding you back? What's keeping you from being free? Free to just give yourselves to, to others like Jesus did. What are you afraid of? What are you going to lose? You think about that, or this sermon is worthless. You've got to put your finger on that in your heart. Say, what? You know, perfectionism, that's a prison. We're talking about getting out of that prison. What do you got to let go? You're going to be free if you do. Forgetting what's behind, Paul says. Forgetting all that I thought I had to my credit, because it's gone. Forgetting all the failures. He doesn't qualify what he forgets or what we need to forget. He's saying this is how it's done. It is not works righteousness. It is living out the gospel, which is always cleansing, which is always forgiveness, which is great is thy faithfulness. Each morning, each morning, his mercy is there. Lamentations. New mercy for a new day because we need it. And the sins are covered. And the perfectionist is just still tied to all the baggage of his sin, thinking, oh no, I've blown it. Well, I'll just try harder. And you know what? You just you just die to yourself, you get over yourself, you embrace Jesus. And then all those beans, like, oh, I've got to stop doing that and I've got to start doing that, will fall into place as you die to yourself and you make yourself available to that life-giving Spirit that Jesus is as the resurrected One who stopped Paul in his tracks on the road to Damascus. Well, I could go on and on. But I've got to stop there. It's a walk of faith. Our Savior's coming. Do you believe that? If you believe it, it'll set you free. And He is going to perfect us. He's going to raise us from death. So we can, like Paul, following Jesus, 
Jesus, uh, he endured the cross, he scorned its shame, Hebrews 12, for the joy set before him. The joy set before him is, oh, they're going to be so happy. They're going to be so joyful in eternity when I lay down my life to rescue them from condemnation, from perishing. And they're going to be with God. They're going to be home with God. They're going to be restored to the garden. It's going to be so great. And that's what Jesus did. He was obedient all the way to death, even death on the cross. And therefore, God exalted him so that everyone would bow the knee and confess, Jesus Christ is Lord. And here, it's the same thing. Paul says, you are my joy and crown. You see? I've had the joy of, of pouring myself as a drink offering on, on top of this, on, over the sacrifice of your faith. And I was able to do that because I wasn't preoccupied with my own sort of perfectionistic agenda of what I look like, like I used to be, when I deluded myself, that I was so zealous for God that I was actually persecuting the church. So listen, you can be an enemy of the cross too, even as a very polite churchgoer here. If you, because of you, you're still in prison... Bring into here this atmosphere of perfectionism. Where because, because of your own need to embrace the, the joy of salvation and the good news of Jesus Christ, that you are cleansed, that you're forgiven, you're acceptable, He loves you, you don't get that. So you bring your own self-loathing and you project it onto others by gossiping and, and, and looking down on and judging. and Oh, let's be free of that. It's, it's, it opposes the cross of Christ. That was all taken care of on the cross. All the condemnation. It's gone. Hallelujah. Amen. Thank you, God, for giving these people patience to sit through a long sermon. Thank you, Lord, for what we did here. Paul says, only let us be, uh, live up to what we have acquired. Even if we don't get everything, Lord, help us to be faithful with what has been revealed to us. And we pray that we would uh, experience what Nehemiah says. That the joy of the Lord is our strength. We pray it in Jesus' name to His glory.